0: Welcome to Observations, podcast from Medical Observer. My name is Annette Catalaris. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Professor Ben Friedman, who is Professor of Cardiology at Concord Hospital and former Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Sydney. He's also a keen violinist and founding member of the medical orchestra Musicus Medicus. Thanks for speaking with me.
1: Pleasure to be with you Annette.
0: Today I want to talk about atrial fibrillation, or AF as it is commonly known. This has been a hot topic lately given the rise of the new anticoagulants, but the role of screening for AF is rarely considered. In fact, there's been little high quality work done to assess whether or not it's worthwhile. So much so that a 2013 Cochrane Review had to rely on a single study to assess the relative benefits of systematic as compared with opportunistic screening and routine care for AF diagnosis. And by that I mean an invitation to have an ECG. Uh, opportunistic screening being pulse palpation during a GP consultation for any reason followed by an ECG if the pulse was irregular, or routine practice, normal case finding on the basis of clinical presentation. Ben, can we start with this review, or this study in fact, and tell us what the research has found?
1: Well, in that particular study, and we know that in our day-to-day practices, we don't always take the pulse. And many of us have blood pressure machines that don't show whether the heart is irregular. So even if we do see our patients, we may not actually check their pulse take their blood pressure so you may miss someone with atrial fibrillation and this study found that the systematic screening was no better than the opportunistic screening and partly because only half the people who they invited to come for the systematic screening actually turned up for it
0: and in fact it was very expensive exercise compared to routine care
1: Well, it was because you had to go through a huge degree of case finding, invite people to come, and it involved a 12-lead ECG training up the nurses to do 12-lead ECGs, training them up to interpret them. And this is, in my view, completely dated technology and completely dated methodology, which makes it not so relevant anymore.
0: Which brings us to the point of what the Cochrane authors suggested, and that was that additional research was needed to examine the effectiveness of alternative screening strategies Ben, you've been looking at new technologies as a screening tool for atrial fibrillation. Can you tell us about the studies you've been involved in?
1: Yes, the study we've just completed was done in 10 pharmacies in Sydney where we screened 1,000 people over the age of 65 using an iPhone ECG and found 1.5% with previously unknown atrial fibrillation. And we're also doing a pilot study in general practice where the receptionist actually takes the ECG with the iPhone.
0: This iPhone device and app sounds really interesting, Uh, yet another example of disruptive technology. Can you tell us about this, this device?
1: Well, we were looking around for a technology that might be able to be rapidly put into play to diagnose atrial fibrillation apart from taking the pulse because you can train people to take the pulse but it's not all that sensitive and it's not all that specific for diagnosing atrial fibrillation and practice nurses are probably good people to do it with but we wanted to look at how you might do it in the community and we didn't think it would be possible to have practice nurses outside so we thought of doing health professionals, pharmacists as the people who might do the screen. And we wanted something exceedingly simple. And we found it finally, an Australian invention co-invented with an American, two Australian bioengineers and an American cardiologist who developed a micro-miniaturized ECG which fits inside a case that fits over an iPhone. So that if you just hold the case, you get instantaneously a high quality recording of the ECG. It's a medical quality recording and you can instantaneously diagnose the rhythm.
0: Remarkable. Just for transparency purposes, do you have any financial interest in this app?
1: None whatsoever.
0: Okay. And tell me, what's it selling for?
1: It's not actually selling in this country yet, but I think it will be. And I don't think the people who are making it, which is a small startup company in the States, have decided on a model. But when they started selling it in the States, it was selling for $200, so not particularly expensive.
0: Okay, and your study uh, went to community pharmacies and used this app as a screening tool?
1: That's correct. We went out to pharmacies. um, We asked people, and this always takes longer, you have to ask people and get informed consent. And at the time we did this, the app and the uh, device were not registered in any country in the world. So we had to get a special clinical trial exemption and that took a lot longer than usual. And in the first instance, All of the ECGs had to be overread by a cardiologist, which was me. But it only takes 30 seconds to record an ECG, and you see it immediately. The ECG is then transmitted to a secure server where anyone in the world can look at it if they've got the appropriate ability to, and the appropriate permissions to to look at it, because this is a secure website. So in the study, we did it with a cardiologist overreading it, which is not really very efficient. We then developed and validated an automated algorithm, and that's what we're now using in a general practice study. And with this algorithm, as soon as the ECG is recorded, it's transmitted to the website. On the website, an algorithm will then diagnose whether you've got atrial fibrillation, produces a cleaned-up ECG with a diagnosis that's 97% sensitive and 92% specific. And the ones that you miss are mostly ones that you don't pick are usually people with um, multiple ectopics or sinus arrhythmia, which you might expect could confuse you with atrial fibrillation.
0: And in fact, those uh, statistics are better than the cardiologist statistics from the study that I looked at.
1: Yeah, the the device does pretty well. I mean, cardiologists will either try and make themselves too sensitive or too specific. Sensitivity tells you um, how many you can pick. Of all the people who have AF, how many will you pick? So if it's 100% sensitive, every single one with AF mm. gets picked. So for a screening test, you want it to be pretty sensitive. You don't want to miss people. Mm. Specificity is a measure of how many false positives the, they are. So if you've got a low specificity, it means there are a lot of false positives and that requires further testing. So you'd like to have as high a sensitivity as you can get to pick all of the ones you, so you don't miss people without having to retest them too much. And the worst thing that might happen to you if the diagnosis is atrial fibrillation is that someone will look at the trace and say, oh, no, the computer got it wrong, or else you have a 12-lead ECG.
0: So, in fact, this is sort of a dream, a dream um, screening test in that it's highly specific, highly sensitive, um, can be used multiple times, is cheap, It really ticks all the boxes, doesn't it?
1: Well, it it did for me. And uh, I have a general practitioner friend who described it to a a woman such that he said, could you imagine if you needed to go and have a pap smear and instead (laughs) of coming to my office, um, you could just hold an iPhone for 30 seconds and it came up with an immediate diagnosis. Would you like that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's hard to argue that an ECG is as onerous as a pap smear, but we might not go there.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I'm to, but It was a nice analogy about screening, but effective screening test. And this, I think, is an exceptionally effective screening test.
0: One of the things I was, I was curious about was that, um, until now anyway, it was well known that algorithms often missed AF in a computerised ECG interpretation. What have you done to overcome this problem?
1: Uh, we tweaked the algorithm. So we tried a couple of them. We had a very smart chap, Um, who was doing it, and we were doing it only on one lead rather than multiple leads because we only record one lead. And uh, by paying attention to how we did the algorithm, um, I think we've got very high sensitivity And that was so in the initial study where we looked at it in a clinic, but it also turned out to be the same when we retrospectively applied the algorithm in the field to the studies that we had collected in the uh, pharmacy study. And we had a thousand ECGs collected in the field. So this is a pretty real life, and a lot of them were pretty awful ECGs, so a lot of noise. And so if you can do that with the same sort of uh, sensitivity, I think that's great.
0: I think um, a lot of people assume that most people are going to present symptomatic with AF, but in fact, it's mostly asymptomatic and with a normal heart rate. Is that correct?
1: Yes. um, This is what surprised me first. I report all of the ECGs in the pre-admission clinic. Uh, This is one of my jobs. And I saw lots of people with atrial fibrillation. I wondered to myself, how many of these people know they've got atrial fibrillation? So we did a study which we published, um, I think, at the end of last year, where we showed that about 10% of all of the people with atrial fibrillation above the age of 65 that are picked up this way don't know they have atrial fibrillation. When you ask them about symptoms, 20% said they had palpitations. But if you look at the people in sinus rhythm, 20% give a history of palpitations. So most of these people are not symptomatic, and their average heart rate was 77. So these people may well never present to a general practitioner, which is why I think we need to go out in the community to screen. I mean, yes, if they come to the GP for another reason, they may, if you're lucky, have the pulse checked. Not everyone will check the pulse each visit. But if you really want to do this, you need to check it in in people who have no symptoms.
0: Yeah, I actually thought the pulse was a better screening tool than you mentioned. I thought the sensitivity was about 94%, even though the specificity was a bit lower.
1: In our pharmacy study, the sensitivity was lower, but I think that may be because we trained pharmacists to do this. Probably general practitioners will have a higher sensitivity by taking the pulse.
0: Mm.
1: Um, But the problem with it is that um, general practitioners don't always take the pulse. Mm. I mean, you know yourself in practice, if you've got someone else coming in for another reason, uh, there's no reason necessarily for you to check the pulse. And if you do check the blood pressure, your device may not actually show you whether the heart rate's regular.
0: The value of a good clinical examination. Let's talk about other uses for this app other than sort of population screening. What about using it as a, as a monitoring device, say for the lone fibrillator who isn't anticoagulated?
1: Well, the problem about this is that when you examine the outcomes of people with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and permanent atrial fibrillation, the uh, rate of stroke is identical. And it's only determined by the Chad score, the CHADS-VAS score, better now. So this is a great fallacy, you know, if people do it only intermittently that their risk of stroke is less than someone who's in permanent AF. It's absolutely wrong.
0: So anybody in AF with a Chad score greater than 2 should be anticoagulated.
1: That's true. And now I think the guidelines have, have really promoted a an extension of the score called CHADS-VASC. Yes. Uh, CHADS-VASC gives an extra score if you're a woman, get one extra point. If you are between the age of 65 and 75, you get a point. And if you've got a history of vascular disease or MI, you get an extra point. And using that score, it is far more sensitive and tells us the people who are truly low risk. Mostly they're, they're at elevated risk if they're older than... 75. I mean, once you're over 75, you've got enough score. And the new guidelines are sort of recommending we go down lower to a score of one to at least consider it. A score of two with the new CHADS-VASC will tell you those people who need to have it. And I think the scores are mostly helpful about telling us who don't need it. The other interesting thing is that what we used to do is give people aspirin. And in fact, that's a bad thing to do. Uh, they've been progressively written out of guidelines because aspirin causes hemorrhage and it's not really effective in preventing stroke. So I think aspirin need not be given, should not be given.
0: Okay. And what about targeting high risk groups? For example, 38% of lone fibrillators have a family history. Is there a systematic approach to people with a family history?
1: I don't think so. And Particularly if people are lone fibrillators without risk factors and are young, they will not have a high enough CHADS-VAS score to require anticoagulation. I think it's probably a different disease. Whereas people who get it as they get older, who are not lone fibrillators, may have the associated abnormalities of the endothelium of the atrium, which predisposes to the thrombosis as well. So that's, that's my sort of gut feeling about it.
0: Okay. The other thing I I want to talk about is one of the results of the RELY trial that compared dabigatran to warfarin. And it showed causes of death in those people with atrial fibrillation. And although stroke is very well known, what is less discussed is sudden cardiac death and progressive heart failure.
1: Yes, both of those are are, are really potential causes certainly um heart failure is well described as increased in incidence but people with atrial fibrillation have an increase in all cause mortality for whatever reason mm. and in the in the meta-analyses of the early sort of warfarin versus placebo or warfarin versus no treatment for atrial fibrillation warfarin actually reduced all cause mortality by about 26% wow and that's something that's not particularly appreciated because most of the current trials are comparing something against warfarin, which is already an effective drug at reducing mortality. Mm. The, only, the only one of the new anticoagulants that actually improved on warfarin for all-cause mortality was apixaban. Mm. But the problem is you're looking at something that's already effective in reducing all-cause mortality. And it's not just stroke mortality, as you say. It can be heart failure mortality. It can be other cardiovascular mortalities. So atrial fibrillation is bad news and you get a definite benefit with anticoagulation for both stroke and, and all-cause mortality.
0: Okay. And there's a recent review out on the risk of increased risk of dementia and cognitive impairment. Do you want to comment on that? Or?
1: Well, I think uh, there is an increased risk of that. And if you look at people with silent atrial fibrillation, they have an increased rate of um, MRI defects. So certainly something must be going on there and there must be some link. Um, but so far, we don't have any information on whether anticoagulation will reduce rate of dementia. And again, all the studies now that we're looking at will not be... Um, against placebo, but they'll be against, if we have any more, against warfarin. So I'm not sure we'll get an answer. In my own uh, study that we looked at in general practice in the UK of asymptomatic atrial fibrillation, these are people picked up completely incidentally. Um, Not only did we find that warfarin was effective in reducing stroke, but it was also effective in reducing all-cause mortality. This was not a randomised study. It was just looking at um, who was given warfarin and who was not.
0: Okay. You were once interviewed a couple of years ago and asked to complete the statement, the condition I love to treat is... To which you replied, atrial fibrillation, so easy and yet so hard. Do you still feel this way or has anything changed to make it much easier?
1: It's not easier. (laughs) And I think the reason is you have to take time. Um, You have to explain it to patients. They have to understand the cause of it. Most of them have never heard of it. So you need to explain the risk of stroke, you need to explain the risk of bleeding, you need to explain why they need to be on anticoagulants, you need to explain the difference between rhythm and rate control. It is a big task to do and if you don't do this, you have um, patients who may not be as compliant. I believe that it's important to do this. In our study in pharmacy, we found almost half of the people with known atrial fibrillation when we asked them, because we discovered atrial fibrillation on this monitor, and we asked them, do you have atrial fibrillation? They said, no. Do you know you've got atrial fibrillation? No. And Most of them are on oral anticoagulant. When we asked the general practitioner, oh, yes, this person has had atrial fibrillation for a while, they're on anticoagulant, but the patients don't know it. This is terrible. So I find that challenging. And I find the resource that I get also is a patient um, organization called the Atrial Fibrillation Association, which has recently set up an Australian website. And uh, I've really promoted this. And every patient I get, I refer to this website. They've got great stories of patients. They've got patient helpline and they've got um, good literature that patients can understand in lay language.
0: Fabulous. And we're happy to give that a plug as well. So Ben, what are the take-home messages of atrial fibrillation for the general practitioner?
1: Well, first of all, it's exceedingly common and it's becoming much more common as it causes stroke as the population ages. So it's at least a third of all strokes that are due to atrial fibrillation. We still have a big problem of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. People who have no symptoms, normal heart rate, don't know they've got atrial fibrillation, who present with stroke as their first manifestation. We also have a problem that a lot of people with atrial fibrillation, which is known, are not being anticoagulated. This is the treatment gap. And We have another big problem, which is the knowledge gap. People with atrial fibrillation, in general, have no idea that, about what the condition is that they've got. And, and the general community has no idea about what atrial fibrillation is, despite it causing a third of all strokes.
0: Thanks very much for your time today. I expect that this will be a very popular app. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you very much, Annette.
0: I've been speaking with Professor Ben Friedman from Sydney University and I hope you'll join me again, Annette Catalaris, for our last podcast of the year.